But there's some good stuff there. Yeah. Especially history and culture. Yeah. I see that for someone. Even were in Greek, I was tempted one time to see what it was all about. Not that I need it, but knowing both languages. How well they were teaching. Okay. Here we go. Father, uh, just to let you know, I'm at a I'm at a conference out west, and my internet is spotty, so I'm going to try to hang with it as best I can. Okay, Anthony, are you there? And Chris, Chris Greer said he's going to be a couple of minutes late. He's here. I'm here now. Yes, he is. Thank you, George. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Uh, I graded your midterms. The marks I posted. Hopefully, they stay on. I just spoke to Cindy, so she's going to check. Sure. Okay. So. Uh, Graded so, and also there are comments after each question. You know things that maybe you should have put in, or uh, sometimes you're kind of broad and vague. You know, uh, I'll just go over quickly questions. Take up too much time. First question: Why was Paul a self-acknowledged Pharisee, so opposed at first to the followers of Jesus? Two reasons, basically. One. The death. Hang on. The first one is, what do they expect in a Messiah? Well, yeah. A cosmic judge. Oh, somebody powerful, glorious, etc. And Jesus was none of that. He was a powerless, powerless. itinerant preacher. He had just a few people following, etc. That's not what they would expect in a Messiah. And the second thing was the matter of his death. Deuteronomy says, uh, curses that anyone who dies under a tree, Jesus died that way. So he's cursed by God, so he could not be God's Messiah. Okay. To what did he attribute his conversion? Counter with the risen Jesus, right. This was so easy, I said, oh my gosh. And how did his conversion affect his life and his religious beliefs? How did it affect you know, his understanding of Jesus? Okay. Jesus was not accursed. It was blessed because God raised him from the dead. Okay? That was going to be the, the sign of the end times. God would raise up his own. And, and uh, the other thing, too, was uh, oh, also the concept of uh, Jesus was actually God's righteous servant. He, he died for the sake of others. He didn't die because he was a sinner and weak, etc. He gave up his life for the sake of others. So just basically that. And then regarding the Jesus and the law. Basically now you came to see that the law couldn't save a person. It's only through faith Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay. Because before they thought they could earn their salvation by doing good things following the law. They find out now that it's only by accepting the faith, death and resurrection of Jesus that it's a gift okay, that we're saved. Next question. According to Ephesians 5, 21 to 6, 9, what attitude must underlie the roles of the relationship between 
fellow Christians, especially husband and wives in marriage. And the key thing, the way they went out there, uh, be submissive and obedience. It's a question of uh, out of love, you know, serving. You know, okay, it wasn't a question of lording over anybody. So the whole thing of whatever relationship Christians were in, husband and wife, uh, owner and slave, father and children, etc. Relationship was to be one of loving service, not to exercise your weight and power over another person. Okay. Uh, in what specific ways does 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 to 12 differ from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 to 11 regarding Jesus' return? Okay. 1 Thessalonians, what was the message of Paul in that about Jesus' return? It's not yeah, it was going to come suddenly, without warning, like a woman, like a child, yeah, woman with pangs of childbirth, or a thief in the middle of the night. Okay, so I mean, the uh, the lesson is be prepared, be ready. It's going to happen. You know, you're not going to get any warning signs. Second Thessalonians, what is the message there? Things are going to happen. Yeah, it's, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen for a while because certain things have to take place first. The jobs, the Antichrist has to come, then he's going to, uh, you know, try to act superior to every other god. He's going to go to Jerusalem, take his seat in the Jerusalem temple, and that would start the final conflict between God and the forces of Satan. And the result there is that, you know, instead of get ready at any moment, is that, you know, you should continue your life, uh, live according to the laws of the gospel, earn your living. Okay, third question. After Paul converted a number of Gentiles, Faith in Christ in Galilee. Other missionaries arrived later, preaching something different from what Paul had taught. What exactly was the gospel these missionaries were preaching? What was the gospel they were preaching? Oh, with this uh, combination of circumcision? Yeah, to be circumcised, follow the, the Torah laws, okay? And uh, explain why Paul finds their views so offensive. Why was it an offense? Certainly, it contradicted the gospel he preached, which was what? Faith in Christ. Faith. faith in Christ, okay? Circumcision was powerless, say. It was faith in Christ. And he said it was an insult to God. Because then, why did he sacrifice his son on the cross? It didn't make any difference. If just by being circumcised and following the Torah, you could be saved. You know, it was uh, senseless to do that. Explain why Paul goes to great lengths in the letters of Galatians to establish the source of his gospel the authority that stands behind his message. Okay. Uh, right? What's the source of his gospel? It was Jesus himself. Yeah. Direct revelation to the risen Christ. Authority that stands behind his message is that of God itself. So not any apostle. Right? God himself. How does Galatians 2, 7 to 10 buttress his position and his teaching? Okay. Oh, uh, he didn't deem quality of God something to be grasped at the, the uh, no, that's, it, the, that's Philippians, not Galatians. Philippians, Galatians, he talks about went, went up to Jerusalem and talked to the powers to be, and they accepted his gospel message to the Gentiles, namely that they didn't have to be circumcised, and they approved of his mission. So his authority, authorization to preach comes from God himself. And then even the leaders of the church backed him up and supported, uh, you know, his mission that was given to him by God. 
So that was that. Um, he explains his authorization comes from God, and the, the sign of approval that he was right comes from his fellow apostles. Okay, okay finally, uh, no. the congregation that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians appears to have been riddled with interpersonal conflicts, ethical, pride, and erroneous teachings. Briefly identify and explain three of these problem areas. First of all, you have the visiting prostitutes, it's a stepmother. Second is the, the celebration of the Eucharist, the way they behave. They, they are actually uh, exacerbating the divisions because the poor come late. Right, say no work. Food, the right. rich people kneel and they were glad to see so all the good stuff. This Eucharist is supposed to unite people, but what they were doing was dividing people. And erroneous teachings basically would be uh, the fact that uh, Corinthians, oh, his t- uh, thing is that, you know, their gifts, you know, they thought that oh, they speaking, speak in tongues, that made I'm, I'm more important than you, and we're going by combined to talents. The gifts of, are for the purpose of the church, they want to serve the needs of the church, the unity of the church. There are others too, but those are probably the three big ones I would say. What's the basic message of Philippians 2, 6 to 11? What was Paul's purpose in inserting what is believed to be an early Christian hymn into his letter to the Philippians? Okay. Um, okay, what's the basic message of Philippians 2, 6, 11? The humility of Jesus coming to serve. Yeah, but uh, what did Jesus do? He humbled himself. He didn't stand on soapboxing. Soapboxing on his uh, divinity. He gave up his divinity. Not give it up, but put it aside to become one of us. Okay, why? For the sake of us. So uh, Paul's purpose in serving was, because remember, one of the things was two women were fighting. He told them to settle it. And then this thing is uh, an encouragement now. That you're not supposed to act, you know, like you're boastful, etc. You're supposed We're to equal footing, humble yourself, you know, uh, do whatever you can for the good of other people. So it was uh, the, the main target was unity, stop your fighting, squabbling, etc., and act united, and take Jesus as your example. He didn't come to lord it over us. He humbled himself to become one of us. Okay, so those of you puffing yourself up. That's not exactly what uh, we had in mind. The final one, in Romans, how does Paul address the following issues? A, if the Gentiles and Jews are equal before God, has God forsaken his promise that Jews would be a special people? They're equal before God, and then ask you this, why are they equal before God? Because the first covenant with with Abraham, that's 17. Why does he say Jew and Gentile are are on equal footing? He came from school. They're all sinners. Oh, okay. Remember? The Jews, even with their scriptures, were sinners. They reject Christ. God sent them. The Gentiles reject the signs and the heavens, etc. They should know about the power and might of God. So they're all, I didn't ask that question, but they're all equal. Well, then, if they're equal, have the Jews lost their special position? 
Why? Because Christ is fulfillment of all the promises that God made. Uh, and Christ came to the Jews. The Jews first, then the Gentiles. But he came to his own people. We see in John's Gospel, he came to his own and his own rejected it. Right? So it's not that God rejected the Jews. The Jews rejected God. They didn't they were faithless. God remained faithful to his promise. Okay? So the uh, the idea there is that uh, you know Christ is the fulfillment or he is the Messiah that God sent said he was sent to save the world, save people from their sins. And all he asks is that they believe and accept that. They refuse to Okay. When they refused, then God opened up his message to the Gentiles. That was always part of God's plan that they would be uh, you know, part of the salvation picture. Because you go back to Abraham, okay, it was because of faith. He was not a Jew, but he was considered righteous before God because of his faith God's promises. Okay, and the second question, does Paul's law-free gospel to the Gentiles lead to lawless and immoral behavior in their part? They didn't have to follow the laws of the Torah. What did they have to follow? They weren't law free. They were still bound by a law, which was what? It was the core of the Torah, which was love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So they didn't have to follow the, the dietary and all the other kind of laws of the Torah. They had to follow another law, which is a moral one, which is love of neighbor. Okay. That's why I didn't take that question because I'm not sure. <laughs> By the way, every question was answered. The most popular one was one. I think uh, all but two or three people took that one. The one that was least. Now the other's pretty good. Uh, question two, I think, had ten. Question three, four. Five had about eight each or something. So, so we can see the test on? I, yeah. Oh, I just want to bring your answers and you'll find, uh, I think you should be a, go into test. test. For it. Go into test. You'll see I have a box for comments okay. and the, the grade that you got for that particular question. Oh, okay. And then when you go into uh, grade book, you'll find your overall grade. It does it to me. All I do is fill out boxes and then click enter. And calculates it and puts it on your gradebook. So that way we know what we got wrong, and that way we can reinforce it to learn. Yeah, obviously, the things that you should have. Sometimes you got part of the things, sometimes you didn't answer the question. Sometimes part two of the question wasn't answered. Uh, like, for instance, uh, in one case, at the law free gospel, there was two parts of that question. One was, as uh, God. As the Jews lost their special position, the second was about the law free gospel. So if you didn't answer the second part, you lost a good bit of credit on that. All right. Get to John's gospel here. Tonight, I'm hoping to do parts one and two introduction. I'm going to have to synopsize a lot of it, some of these things that go into a little detail. Just really don't have the time for because I want to get into the actual text, stories, etc. Okay.
named Brown, who's the author of your introduction to New Testament, points out that we have to distinguish between the author, whose ideas the book expresses, and the writer. So, no difference between an author and a writer. The writer can be anybody from a secretary who carefully records what the author dictates to someone who is like an independent collaborator who draws upon the author's ideas and gives their own literary style to my final book. So what that would mean would be, like for instance, you know, uh, if I dictated something to somebody, I'm the author, but that person is the writer. Also, if you decide to publish my notes, who's the author? I am the author. <clears throat> who's the writer? But you're not actually transcribing every single word. You're putting it in a way you understand and, and the audience that you want to reach understand. Okay? So there's a difference. Uh, Brown makes a difference. And you'll see it does apply to the Gospel of John. The final question of the concept of authorship in the Bible is fairly broad. So if an author had a group of disciples who carried on his thought even after his death, their words might be attributed to him as author. What, what examples do we have? Some of the letters from Paul. Paul's, yeah, Paul's yeah. letters, right? We know some definitely is. Others are written by followers, okay? So, uh, all right, so, for example, in the Old Testament, you have the book of Isaiah. Three writers, yeah. yeah. Isaiah, you do Isaiah, try to Isaiah. Okay. The uh, author of wisdom, who is attributed to that? Solomon. Solomon. He didn't write all those Psalms, the same. Uh, the Psalms, rather. Who wrote those? David. David. He didn't write them all, right? The same thing with the Pentateuch. That's ascribed to Moses. Right. He didn't write all those books. Okay. So sometimes the author of books simply means the authority behind it. Author, source, and authority. All right, now, regarding the author of John's Gospel, look at two parts to it external evidence and internal evidence. External evidence is uh, the testimony of other people, other sources, that's external to the book. Internal is information we can get from the book itself. Regarding the external evidence about who wrote this book, Irenaeus was a bishop between around 180 and 200, says that after the writing of the other Gospels, John, the disciple of the Lord, who reclined on his bosom, published his Gospel at Ephesus. This is Irenaeus. He says after the writing of the other Gospels, in other words, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, his Gospel were written. John, the disciple of the Lord, who reclined at his bosom, that's at the last supper scene, right? Published his gospel at Ephesus. So that's external evidence from that side of the Other people who uh, attest to this fact are uh, the writers of the Moratorian Fragment, M U R A T O R I N I A N, 
It gets some of this material in Brown when you read a chapter on John. Also, Clement of Alexandria. There were others as well. Those are three people back in the early times who say that John, the disciple of the Lord, is the author of this book. Now, the notion of authorship is well established by the end of the second century. Authors of these various testimonies identified John, the disciple, as John, son of Zebedee, one of the twelve. The question is uh, brought up is the fact that uh, when they write in identifying this John to whom the gospel was customarily attributed as the son of Zebedee, on what grounds did Irenaeus say that the unnamed disciple was John? Well, Irenaeus says he gets his information from Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna. had personally heard John. So then you have this chain of tradition from John to Polycarp to Irenaeus. And what's important also is that Irenaeus locates John at Ephesus. But again, people raise the issue of the fact that there's no evidence in the New Testament that John, the son of Zebedee, was ever at Ephesus. In fact, he seems to have been active in Jerusalem and the Palestine area. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, doesn't mention John's presence at Ephesus. And then Papias, the bishop of Heropolis, who himself writes from Asia Minor, doesn't talk about John being present in Asia. Now, does that mean that's not true? All that is negative evidence, and it really isn't inclusive. Because if uh, someone asked me, did I see you the other night? I said, no. Oh, I guess he wasn't there. He may have been, he just may have seen him. May have seen him, right. So negative evidence, the fact that somebody doesn't mention that he was there, does not mean he wasn't. So that doesn't undercut Irenaeus' testimony. On the other side, there's a lot of impressive evidence that John, the son of Zebedee, was actually at Ephesus. St. Justin, who lived at Ephesus around the year 135, talks about John, who was one of the apostles of Christ, as having lived it. The apocryphal Acts of John, written around 150, mentioned the ministry of John at Ephesus. And then Polycrates, P-O-L-Y-C-R-A-T-E-S, was the bishop of Ephesus. The letter he wrote to Pope Victor around the year 190 claimed that John was buried at Ephesus. Okay, as a side note, excavations at Selkuk, which is a hill near Ephesus, 
beneath the basilica later built in honor of St. John indicate the existence of a mausoleum from the third century, seemingly confirming the testimony of Polycrates that, uh, that John was buried there. Now, there are a lot of other people uh, who are proposed as possibly the author of this gospel. One of them is John Mark. John. Uh, but the problem is that when John Mark is identified as an evangelist, as a gospel writer, he's always associated with the gospel of Mark, not John. So there are a lot of other figures that are proposed as but. The bottom line is that there's no real evidence of widespread doubt in the early church about Johannine authorship. And the early church doesn't seem to have any doubt that John is the author of this book. The only ancient tradition about the authorship of the fourth gospel to which any sizable body of evidence can be adduced is that it is the work of John, son of Zebedee. So that's the external evidence. The early, you know, early witnesses claiming that people claiming that John was at Ephesus, and uh, pretty much the weight of the evidence of the early church uh, says that John, son of Zebedee, was the author of this book. Now the internal evidence, which you can dig up from inside the book, the source of the tradition of the gospel can be found in chapter 19. Verse 35. I'm just going to quote a number of places here. 1935. We're talking about Jesus on the cross, the soldier pierced the side of the spear. That's what he testifies. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is truth. He knows that he tells the truth, so that you also may believe. So, all right, so the one who had seen the piercing of Jesus' side of his crucifixion had given testimony, and his testimony was true. This eyewitness at Calvary is not clearly identified but shortly before that, verses 26 and 27, I just quoted 35, 26, 27, it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. So obviously the one who was there at the cross scene, the piercing of Jesus' side, is the one who was at the cross, okay? to whom uh, Mary is entrusted. So in verse 21, chapter 21, verse 24, it says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things. Now, as written these things, we know that his testimony is true. So what that is saying there is that we're told that the disciple whom Jesus loved 
It's the same disciple who is the witness of these things. You see, he wrote these things. His testimony, you know, is true. Now, it's not really certain from this verse whether the disciple in question physically wrote these things or caused them to be written. Whether he actually wrote them himself or somebody else write them. But he's presented as the source not just for the events in chapter 21, which is the post-resurrection appearances, but for the whole gospel narrative. Okay? Bearing witness and who has written these things, we know that his testimony is true. So it's not these things is not just the uh, appearance of Jesus as the resurrection. Then also in that verse 24, it clearly distinguishes the disciple from the writer. And you read that and sometimes you don't pick it up. This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things. He's a witness. Okay? And who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now you have him and we. Who is the we? The writer and author. Is the writer. The witness is the, the author. author, right. The witness is the apostle or the disciple of Christ. The we is the one who is writing his testimony down. Okay, so, again, you almost don't even notice that. But he's saying, we know that his testimony is true. Okay, We are writing these things. We know his testimony is true. So, it distinguishes the disciple from the writer. So the eyewitness is like, yes. Can I ask you a quick, who is the witness? I'm sorry. The witness would be the one who's standing by the cross, the one to whom Jesus entrusted his mother. He's a witness of the lance being put into Jesus' side. He's also the witness of the things in chapter 21, Jesus reappearing after his resurrection to Peter and telling him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Okay. Okay. That's why I said it's important to realize there's a separation between the author and the writer. Okay. The author in this case would be the witness, because it's his testimony that's being written down by the writer. And he says, we know his testimony is true. Why do we know it's true? He was there. Okay, the eyewitness disciple referred to himself simply as the other disciple. His own followers refer to him as the beloved disciple. Sometimes you have uh, both there, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So the, the author, the disciple who's the witness, refers to himself as the others, never talks about himself, refers to himself as the other disciple. His community, writing down his testimony, referred to him as the beloved disciple, because he's the founder of their community. He's the one that Jesus loved. So when you see the other disciple, that is the apostle himself talking about himself. When it says the beloved disciple has been added by his community. Now, before I move on, just a couple of questions that come up. Some people say, how did the son of Zebedee, who was a fisherman, was this 
described as illiterate and ignorant in Acts chapter 4, how can you write a gospel in such good Greek? Well, simple answer. Scribe. Yeah. The witness is not the writer. The scribe could have... Uh, the son of Zebedee, the fisherman, does not have to be the writer. He is the witness or the author. Well, of yes, he's witnessing someone's intellectual coming to a form. But a writer is not as one who's writing the gospel. The author is the disciple, the fisherman. He may not be that educated, but the person who is transcribing and writing down his testimony is putting it using his own you know, skills, his own language abilities. Okay, so that's not a big problem. Also, how could a simple fisherman from the Lake of Gennesaret become so cultured he could author a gospel on such a high spiritual level uh, and show in contact with Hellenistic thought? Well, again, if the place of origin is Ephesus, okay, that's a place where a lot of religious ideas um, were brewing. It was kind of a, a melting pot of uh, things. So. Uh, John, this gospel shows knowledge of rabbinical Judaism, the way the law is interpreted. It shows knowledge of Hellenistic Judaism, in terms of uh, wisdom in the Old Testament. And also the thought and language of pagan Hellenism, Logos, the word. That was something that was in pagan Hellenism and also Gnosticism. So, uh, but again, if John stayed for any number of years at Ephesus, as some ancient Christian traditions say he did, he probably learned a lot because many different currents of religious thought mingled and came into uh, conflict or rubbed shoulders with one another there. So, you know, it's just by listening, you know, you could absorb some of these things. Okay. Now, just to get back to the witnesses, okay. Now, who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? There are three types of references to anonymous disciples in the fourth gospel. In chapter 1, verses 37 to 42, the two disciples heard him say this. Who are the two disciples? Uh, right before that, Next day, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. He looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Okay. So they're not identified. It says two disciples. So uh, let me see. One is named right after this. Uh, one of the two who heard John speak. And following him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which means Christ. Brought to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Kephas, which means Peter. Okay, so you have Peter and Andrew. Next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip. Okay, Philip finds Nathaniel. So, we know from all of the listing of the disciples, who is usually named among the first? Peter. 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 Andrew. Andrew. James. 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 And John. John. 
Okay. None of them are mentioned here except Peter and Andrew. Okay, so the two unnamed disciples haven't been named yet. And Peter and Andrew, uh, Nathaniel and Bartholomew. But we don't know the two disciples are named. Name. But yeah. But the fact that all the other the other three traditions, the synoptics, mention the two brothers, along with Peter and Andrew, two sets of brothers. Two disciples, but they name later on Peter and Andrew. And they don't name James and John. So the question is, could one of these be John? And the, the uh, white evidence seems to indicate. All right. Uh, so you have Simon, Peter, Philip, and Andrew, and Nathaniel. Now, there are two passages that mention another disciple or the other disciple. John chapter 18, verses 15 to 16. Peter, another disciple, followed Jesus, who's been taken captive into the courtyard of the high priest. That's the scene where Peter's going to deny Jesus, okay? The other disciple is known to the high priest and gets Peter into the courtyard. Peter can't get into the courtyard unless this other disciple vouches for him against the narrow. Puts in a good word to the enemy. Also in John chapter 20, verses 2 to 10, Mary Magdalene runs to Peter and the other disciple. Here it also says the one whom Jesus loved, to tell them that Jesus' body is not in the tomb. The other disciple outruns Peter to the tomb. Peter enters first, then the other disciple enters, sees, and believes. And then there are six passages that mention the disciple whom Jesus loved. So you have one passage where you have an unnamed, unnamed disciples, that's in the Baptist, in the John the Baptist scene. Two passages that mention another disciple, one is in the courtyard, and Jesus is taken captive. The second is where Mary Magdalene discovers the empty tomb and runs back to Peter and, and the other disciples. Now, there are six passages that mention the disciple whom Jesus loved. First one is in chapter 13, verses 23 to 26. The disciple whom Jesus loved leans back against Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. Simon Peter signals to him to ask Jesus about the betrayer. The disciple whom Jesus loves, there is several. The second one is in chapter 19. Verse 25, also, uh, yeah, 25 to 27, I should say. The disciple whom Jesus loved stands near the cross, and Jesus gets married to this disciple as his mother. The third passage mentions the disciple whom Jesus loved is identified and chapter, excuse me, chapter 20, verse 2 to 10, that's when Mary Magdalene runs off to get Peter and the other disciple. 20, verse 2 to 10. The fourth one is chapter 21, verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved is in a fishing boat with Simon Peter and the other disciples. So they're fishing after Jesus had died. 
this other disciple whom Jesus loved recognizes the recognized Jesus standing on the shore, tells Peter. And of course, what does Peter do? Jump in the water and runs to the shore. The fifth reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved is in chapter 21, verses 20 to 23. Okay? Jesus is walking along the shore with Peter, and he's asking him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Okay. And uh, the writer, uh, there is a disciple whom Jesus loved, is following Peter and uh, Jesus on the shore. The writer reminds us that he's the same disciple spoken of in chapter 13, 23 to 26 at the Last Supper. The same disciple leaning at Jesus' chest. Peter turns and sees his disciple and asks Jesus about him. Jesus says that possibly the disciple will remain alive until he himself returns. The writer says that this statement of Jesus created confusion. Reading between the lines, we may assume the disciple has died. So there's need of explanation. Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. It says possibly he'll remain alive until he returns. And the final one is in chapter 1, 21, 24. The writer tells us that this disciple is the source of all the things that have been narrated. This is a disciple who is bearing witness to these things, bringing these things, and we know this testimony is true. Chapter and verses that 21, verse 24. So this beloved disciple is a witness to Jesus. One of his company witnesses, what Jesus says and did. He's the source of the fourth gospel. So you have all these references, never once is named. Who isn't named in the Gospel? Gospel of John, but John's name, as I mentioned. It's always the other disciple. John is referring to himself. Or the beloved disciple in his community is referring to him. So that's internal evidence. Okay? Somebody with him at the Last Supper, somebody standing at the cross. Somebody was there at the call by John the Baptist. The last supper, uh, Mary Magdalene, the resurrection scene, the empty tomb, etc. So that's all the internal evidence that this uh, apostle, who's a follower of Jesus, is John. So you have external evidence, naming John, internal evidence. You know, all the other gospels, John is one of the favorite ones. All the others are mentioned except John. The other disciple is mentioned. So you can always say that refers to John. And his community has the you know the honorific title, the beloved disciple, one of Jesus taught. Isn't John the only one who wasn't martyred? He died of natural yeah. death? That's the tradition, yeah. Okay, where was this gospel written? We said before, Renee tells us where. Ephesus. Ephesus, okay. There are other places that uh, you know, are suggested, but uh, Ephesus seems to be the main one. Why is Ephesus uh, possible or probable? So there are parallels between John and the book of Revelation. 
Where was the book of Revelation written? Ephesus. Also, the anti-synagogue motif in the gospel makes sense in the Ephesus region. Because if you read the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, you have uh, bitter anti-synagogue polemics in this area of Asia Minor. So where is the anti-synagogue polemic motif found in John's Gospel? Chapter 9, the story of the man born blind. His parents are threatened with being thrown out of the synagogue. Uh, also, there's possibly a polemic against the disciples of John the Baptist. The New Testament mentions disciples baptized with John's baptism in only one place outside Palestine, namely Ephesus. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19. Okay, the apostles come across people who are baptized with John's baptism. Where are they from? Ephesus. Also, uh, some parallels parallels between John and the Qumran scrolls. And finally, there is maybe an anti-docetic or anti-gnostic polemic. Okay. Uh, which would fit well in the uh, Ephesusine. Where would you get the anti-Gnostic or Docetist? The appearance of Jesus touched my hand said, I'm real. Uh, Docetist. Or, the, or the, before that, yeah, Thomas. But Jesus, I, in John's Gospel, he eats something. You know, a ghost yeah, can't what, eat. What do you got to get? Right. Yeah. So, in a sense, it's uh, an argument against those that say he only appeared to be. Jesus. Okay, when was the gospel written? Okay, most scholars will say maybe between 90 and 110. It's possible that the final form of this gospel, including chapter 21, composed around 100 or a little bit later. One of the reasons suggested is for, for the late dating is to develop theology in John. Christology and also sacramental theology. Because one of the things about John the other Gospels, like in Matthew, Jesus sends the apostles out, go out, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John does not have Jesus sending him out. He spends a whole chapter explaining what's the meaning of being born again in baptism. So he really gives you the theology of baptism, not just Jesus establishing that sacrament, but he gives you the theology of why it's important to get baptized. The same thing with the Eucharist. The other Gospels report when Jesus did the Last Supper, took bread, said, this is my body, took the chalice, this is my cup. What does John do? He spends all of chapter 6 talking about the bread of life, why you must eat bread of life. And so he gives you the theology behind the sacrament. So they're saying, okay, that's one reason possibly why you know, we have this later dating for John's Gospel. But you have to be careful, though. Uh, it's not like a slam dunk because... Paul has a Christology, right? 
much more developed than you find in the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic Gospels, you don't have much of a Christology of reporting on the life and ministry of Jesus. Paul has a more developed Christology, and he is before any of the Synoptics. But uh, given the fact that Irenaeus says that after the writing of the Gospels, John writes his Gospel, then we can see that makes sense. He doesn't repeat what the Synoptics do. He explains why Jesus established these signs. Uh, now, the earliest plausible date uh, is possible the first edition, John Scott will talk about this in the second editions, is dated around the same time as Matthew and Luke, between 75 and 85. scholars lean more toward 85, the dating of Matthew's gospel, because Matthew is the closest one to John in his theological development. The theme of excommunication from the synagogue which was in chapter 9 in John's Gospel, where did that come from? This idea that Jews would be excommunicated from the synagogue. It came from, what, meeting at Jambia in the year 85, when Jews got together and figured out, what does it mean to be a Jew? They lost their temple, priests were no more, so they changed from a a religion of sacrifice to a religion of Torah law. So you could be a good Jew any place just by following the Torah. You need the temple in Jerusalem or your priest to offer sacrifice for you. So the theme of excommunication came around the year 85 when they were grappling with these fellow Jews who, be, who believed Jesus was the Messiah. So they threw them out of the synagogue because that was heretical. So that theme is in John's Gospel. That didn't take place until around the year 85. So, you know, so we're saying most likely it's not before that time. It wasn't really, uh, again, a later date. Uh, date earlier than that is implausible. A date in between, maybe uh, 90 to 110 is much more likely. All right, now, we talked about uh, Editions of John's Gospel. Now, when you study the Gospel, I mean, when we read it, we don't pick up these things. When you study the Gospels, you start saying, oh yeah, gee, I never noticed that before. Why is that so? And then, you know, scholars will try to uh, come up with uh, explanations. Okay, Brown uh, says that there are five stages to the development of John's Gospel. Okay, the first stage is the existence of a body of traditional material which featured the words and works of Jesus. So notice you're talking about the preaching, the oral preaching. Okay. A body of traditional material which featured the words and works of Jesus. It's material similar to what went into the Synoptic Gospels. 
But this body of traditional material, its origins were independent of the synoptic tradition. In other words, synoptics were drawing on a tradition that in many ways was common. But the oral tradition that John seemed to be drawing from was different than the synoptic tradition. So that's the first thing, the oral tradition out there. The second stage is the development of this material into Johannine patterns. As you start to see the handiwork of an author here. Over a second, several decades maybe, the traditional material, which is the oral preaching tradition, was sifted, selected, and thought over and then molded into the form and style, the individual stories and discourses that have become part of the fourth gospel. Let me explain what that means. So this process was accomplished through oral preaching and teaching. Toward the end of the second stage, written forms of what was preached and taught took shape. So you have this tradition material. Now it's coming to this author John and his community, and he's working it over as he is preaching it to his community. It's taking a shape and form that's going to uh, you know, eventually become a written form. So what kind of things? Well, the story of Jesus' miracles. You start to notice something. Uh, most of these developed into dramas. So for instance, the cure of the man born blind. A whole chapter, story back and forth, dialogue, Pharisees, his parents, Jesus, etc. It's a drama. You can stage it on the show, on Broadway. The other disciples just have maybe seven or eight Jesus came and somebody was sick, he healed him or whatever it is. He has a whole chapter. So he dramatizes the miracles. Okay. There's the same thing in Canaan, right? Wedding, okay. big drama. Wow. Then you have uh, sayings of Jesus, or woven into lengthy discourses. So, for instance, in chapter three, it's a whole chapter. He and Nicodemus are having a chat. Chapter 6, the bread of life, he and the apostles, the whole chapter. So you see what John is doing is he, he's taking something, rather than reporting multiple things, he's taking one thing and building it into a dramatic scene. Same thing with the raising of Lazarus, whole chapter, chapter 11. Lazarus is sick, he's notified, he doesn't go, and he goes, he's Martha and Mary and the crowds, etc. So, so this is what I mean by the author, John, shaping the material. Okay. He's got this material, the story of you know, cures, etc., teachings, etc. What he's doing is he's uh, creating them into dramatic units or extensive dialogues. And then also, he's introducing some uh, unique uh, literary characteristics. We'll go over these uh, later on. 
But for some of them, it's uh, the uh, techniques he uses both of irony and misunderstanding. So, for instance, misunderstanding. Destroy this temple, I will build it up. And they thought he was talking about the physical, uh, physical temple. He was talking about his body. Uh, irony. Better one person die for the sake of the nation than everybody die. Irony is that it's true, but not in the way Caiaphas thought. Get rid of this guy, we won't have any trouble. Get rid of this guy, his death is going to mean our life. Usually, okay. sword to life. Okay. So you have these unique things, uh, uh, unique to John. You start to see him crafting these things into into dramas, <clears throat> then introducing certain literary techniques, characteristics. Okay, and also he tries to unite the sign that's performed with the explanation. So you have this uh, unifying a sign and a discourse that interprets the sign. So an explanation is often joined to a miracle. These are longer explanations. Okay, so uh, the next thing is the organization of this material into a consecutive gospel. Now we have the written format. First we have the oral tradition, and John taking the oral tradition, kind of massaging it and working on it, you know, developing it into dramas and certain literary techniques, etc. Now he's getting to the point where he's going to write this down. So he organized the material into a consecutive gospel. Now this is the first edition of the fourth gospel as a distinct work. Okay. It was the work of this master preacher, you know, the, uh, the author of the gospel. Okay. He had given shape to the main body of the Joanna material. He was the one that organized his first edition of the gospel. He is the evangelist. We can't say whether he wrote the gospel himself or he was a scribe. This edition probably was in the Greek and Aramaic. So, the organization of this first edition of the gospel meant selection. It wouldn't have included all of the Joanna material stemming from the evangelist preaching. Because what does he do? He says in chapter 21, the end of it, Chapter 20, rather. Uh, right? That's okay. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to this, uh, let me say, chapter 20, verse 20, verse 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. You know, he picked and chose what he wanted to put in this book. But these are written, and you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believing you may have life in his name. And then at the end of chapter 21, he says, there are many, also many other things which Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose, this world itself could not contain the books that could be written. So we know for sure there were things in this gospel just selected. There are other things that happened that John just didn't write about and include. He kind of was selective in what he decided to do. And build these things up into big dramas.
All right, so we know that first, second, third stage, we follow that? No. Fourth stage. It's the second edition of the gospel. This is done by the evangelist also. And he adds material to the gospel. Uh, to answer the objections or difficulties of several groups. For instance, the disciples of John the Baptist. Right, in chapter 1, there's a whole scene about Jesus pointing out, uh, John the Baptist pointing out, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Why? Because there were still disciples of John the Baptist around who claimed he was the Messiah they were waiting for at the time. I mean, I'm talking about this. this here. So, uh, in a sense, in chapter one, we have this laundry, I think, Jesus pointing out, no, I'm not unfit to tie the straps with a sandal. Behold the Lamb of God. That's the one that you're waiting for. So, I am not the Messiah. And then he has them coming to Jesus. Are you the Messiah? No. But you have that uh, add on later answering that particular difficulty. You know, still some people claiming that John the Baptist is the Messiah waiting for him. So he adds that to it. Then you have Jewish Christians who have not yet left the synagogue. Chapter 9. Okay, They haven't left the synagogue, but they're about to be thrown out. Okay, so he adds that little point about Jesus talking to and said, don't worry if they throw you out. Okay, so you have chapter 1, verses 19 to 34, and also verse 9 there, the blind man, chapter 9, rather, verses 22 to 23. So in the second edition, he incorporated some other things, because the issues that cropped up after he wrote the first edition of the gospel. Then you have a final editing or redaction of the gospel by someone other than the evangelist. He's called the redactor, or final editor. Most likely, the redactor was a close friend or disciple of the evangelist and part of his school of thought. Okay, he would have been there as John was crafting the material to his own style and then eventually putting it into print. Now, one of the main contributions of the redactor of the gospel, which is the final stage, was to preserve all the available Jonah material from stage two that hadn't previously been inserted into either the first or second edition of the gospel. So in other words, as John is massaging the oral material, okay, uh, some things were not written about in the first edition or the second edition. This was material that stemmed from the preaching of the evangelist himself. So it wouldn't differ in style or vocabulary from the rest of the gospel. Now, the redactor seems to have made a large collection of Jonah material in which Jesus was portrayed as speaking to his disciples. 
Such a collection was added to the Last Supper discourse in chapters 15 to 17. So 15 to 17 are added later, the final edition of the Gospel. How do we know it's added later? Well, chapter 14 ends. Uh, Jesus talking to his disciples, and he says, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go hence. Okay, get up, let's go. And what's the next line? I am the true vine, my Father is the vine So he goes on for three more chapters. He just said to them, let's go. Chapter 18, how does that start? Jesus has spoken these words. He went with his disciples across the Kijun Valley. So chapter 18 really follows up on chapter 14. Let's get up and go. Chapter 8 says, when Jesus said these words, he went forth with his disciples across the Kijun Valley. So you have chapters 15, 16, and 17. What's in there? Well, it's a lot of instructions that Jesus had given his disciples. It was not put in the earlier editions of John's Gospel. Now, if John the disciple had died by this point, there was a good chance that the community would lose all of these things, and they thought it was very important. He's talking about, you know, uh, I'm the true vine. He talks about my commandment, you love one another. Uh, and he talks about, uh, you know, about the spirit. 17, 18, okay. A lot of the final discourse of Jesus, I don't pray for these only, but for those who believe in me, okay, so I'm losing, okay. All these beautiful things that were part of the Last Supper discourse were added in later by the final redactor. Why? Because he said, we're going to lose this. Okay. I know this was part of John's preaching, but he didn't include it in this gospel. That's not the only place. I just read to you a moment ago, how does chapter 20 end? That Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing may have life in his name. End of story. Right? Then, after this, Jesus revealed himself, again, to his disciples, by the Sea of Tiberias. When he ends that chapter, he says... But there were also many other things that Jesus did. It's the same ending as chapter 20. All right. So this final chapter, 21, was added later. So what does it do? Two things, really. One is it gives Peter a chance to undo his triple denial, right? He says three times, do you love me? Lord, I love you. You know I love you. Also, the way the gospel is written, who is the champion of this gospel? Peter. John, the beloved disciple. Right? Now, this chapter 21, you would, if you didn't have that, and you would think that John is the fairhead guy, he's the one that, you know, is take charge guy now. But this is written to remind us that who is in charge of the church? Peter. Oh, Peter. Peter. All right. Jesus tells him, you know, uh, he gives him back. He undoes the denial. And he gets back, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. All right. So that chapter there is 
meant to remind the Johannine community that John is the witness who gives testimony. Peter is the authority in charge of the church. We base our faith on the testimony of John, but who is the one that guides the church, nourishes us? Peter. It had two separate roles. So Peter, in a sense, is rehabilitated. But chapter 20, you can see how chapter 20 ends. Notice that even the chapter ends almost the same way. Why? Because it's added on to make sure that his community, John and I community, realize that Peter was the head of the church. John was extremely important. Why? Because on his testimony, we face our faith in the things that Jesus did. And also another part of the gospel, let's see, is the prologue for the first chapter. The name of the word is God. One of the reasons why we say that maybe a lady will go into thing you'll see on the poster there, some early Christian hands, we'll get into it next week, uh, is that uh, the only time the word is mentioned is in the prologue. The beginning is the word, the word was the God, the word was God, okay? Word to flesh, both ones. Yeah, it's throughout the first chapter, and it never appears again. So it indicates to us, uh, and we'll talk about it uh, later on, so the gospel probably began right after the prologue. Gospel again, like the gospel of Mark. But this is a testimony of John. The Jews sent priests and Levites in Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, did not deny, confessed that not the Christ. The gospel may have begun with that, with John the Baptist. Mark begins his gospel with, John the Baptist. Okay. After Matthew and Luke have their infancy stories, what do they have? John the Baptist. Okay. So those three things most likely added later. Prologue, beginning of it. The final chapter of 21, rehabilitation of Peter. Okay. And then the three chapters of added discourse material in the Last Supper scene. And again, you can see, I mean, it's beautiful words of Jesus, you know, encouragement and uh, all that. And if the final refactor didn't, you know, keep that, I know, you know, we've heard John talk about this, and, but he didn't include it. You know, this is, we feel this is important for us to hold on to, realize. So he adds it into it. So, so Brown says, okay, you have five stages. And whether or not it's actually five or not, but you can see how John's gospel moves to us and a person sitting down writing it and then finish with it. Okay, he is oral material, stage one. He's shaping the oral material, building it to, to dramas, stories, etc. Third stage, he finally writes it down. Uh, fourth stage, certain situations have come up, so he adds material into it. Polemic against just the Baptist disciples who think he might be the Messiah. Same thing about uh, you know the uh, Jewish Christians being thrown out of the synagogue. And Jesus assuring him, you know, don't worry about it. Then the final stage of addition is 
material like the prologue, the final chapter, and the three extra chapters. You can see, you know, let's get up and go. Now, I always say it's like the Irish goodbyes. Now, they're, they're, they're setting out to go, and an hour later, they're still talking to each other. Okay, this is the same thing here. Let's get up and go. And then chapter 18 is, he gets up and goes. In between, there's three chapters of discourse material. Chapter, uh, and we'll show how the gospel really ended in chapter 20 with the Thomas story. So Thomas story was a story aimed at all of us future believers. That was the end of it. He writes all this stuff, and the very last thing in the gospel is the story of Thomas, which is geared to us. Then he adds the final chapter. Why? Because he wants you to know Peter is rehabilitated. He is the head of the church. John is the witness that caused all these things to be written down that we, we can base our faith on. Okay. do now is talk about the structure of John's gospel. I'll give you benefits of my research and my doctorate, my dissertation, and you see what you think. Okay. Now, the basic position on the literary division of the fourth gospel has been advocated by the majority of Joanite scholars for the last half century or more that so John's Gospel is divided into two major parts <clears throat> with a pronounced break occurring at the end of chapter 12. That seems to be the major position of most of your, your critics. John's Gospel is divided into two parts. There's a break between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Now the first one to... Uh, in the last uh, hundred years to advocate this, that there's a two-part division of the gospel uh, on the basis that the miraculous works of Jesus are the main focus of the first half of the gospel. Now, Jesus is suffering and death on the cross are the central concern of the second part. So, miracles, Jesus in the first part, Jesus is suffering and death on the cross, the second part. There's an English scholar, C.H. Dodd, back in the 50s. He described chapters 2 to 12 as the book of signs because it narrates the words and miraculous actions or signs of Jesus. So the first up to chapter 12 is the book of signs. Then chapter 13 to 20, he referred to as the book of the passion because it concerned the narrative of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. Then Raymond Brown, who was the author of your introduction there, in his Anchor Bible commentary on John, he describes the first section of the Gospel as the Book of Signs, just like Dodd did. Why? Because it concerned mostly with Jesus' miracles referred to as signs and the discourses which interpreted these signs. 
In the latter part of the gospel, in the second part, he designated or described as the book of glory. God called it the book of the passion. Brown calls it the book of glory. Why does he use that term? It's the resurrection. Because the focus is on Jesus' return to his Father, which is his glorification. Now, Brown notes there's a shift in emphasis from Jesus' public ministry to his hour, from chapter 12 to chapter 13. His audience changes from the crowds to his own. Now, in 1998, Francis Maloney, who wrote the uh, soccer uh commentary on John, he adopts Brown's division. The main parts of the gospel is the book of signs, book of glory. Almost any book you pick up, I think, okay. a commentary on John, most of them just fall right in line. So this is sign, book of glory, book of signs, book of glory. Now, when writing my dissertation, I said that usual designation for two halves of the gospel is a book of signs and book of glory. Okay. It's called into question okay, the validity of the divine and gospel along the lines of sign and glory. I said the real division at the end of chapter 12 is not between signs and glory, but between two different kinds of signs that are narrated by John. So chapter 12 the division there is between signs and glories, between one type of sign and another type of sign. And also, from a narrative point of view, the story, okay, uh, there is the narrative break doesn't take place between chapter 12 and chapter 13. Now, you just you know see whether this makes sense. I say that one of the major flaws in dividing that fourth gospel into two clearly defined sections, Book of Signs, Book of Glory, is that it's inaccurate and misleading. It gives you the idea that the signs narrated by John in his gospel come to an end at the conclusion of chapter 12. The signs are over at the end of chapter 12. It restricts the miracles or signs of Jesus to those recorded in chapters 2 to 11, namely from the changing of water to wine at Cana until the raising of Lazarus from the dead at Bethany. Okay? Signs are restricted to that. I said, then that denies any understanding of any action of Jesus in the second part of the gospel as a miracle or sign. What would I be referring to there? Resurrection of glory. Not just the resurrection, but the whole thing of his death, burial, and his, uh, suffering, death, and resurrection, and all that. Okay? All right, now, uh, <clears throat> Brown seems to imply that unless something is explicitly termed a sign by the evangelist, it should be regarded as such. Okay, now, okay. While the presentation of Jesus' miracles and signs is definitely a major concern in the Gospel of John, when you study it, you realize there are really two types of signs. The first type are the signs that Jesus worked publicly. Cana and 
during raising Lazarus that signs he worked publicly. And the second is the sign that he himself became through his crucifixion and resurrection. So chapter 12 doesn't mark the end of Jesus' signs, just introduces a shift in emphasis from the miraculous signs to the promised sign, one which Jesus predicted on the occasion when he cleansed the temple, chapter 2. So the first sign Jesus performed at Canaan is followed by his first public appearance in Jerusalem and the announcement of the sign he's going to promise. In that appearance in Jerusalem, what does he do in John's Gospel? He cleans out the temple. signs Jesus worked in public and the sign he would become when he was lifted up the cross challenges the view that limits the presence of Jesus' signs to the first part of the gospel. And then the significance of the crucifixion and resurrection as the ultimate sign of Jesus in the gospel of John okay, undermines the idea that uh, you know, the signs are over at the first half. Okay. Now, okay. When Jesus visited Jerusalem following the first miracle he performed at Canaan, is one of his visible signs. The Jews demanded of him a sign that would prove to them he had authority to oust the money changers from the temple. Give us a sign. You have a right to do this. All right. After Jesus establishes the authorization for his action on the grounds it's my father's house, okay, he answers their specific request. What sign will you show us? Seeing you do these things? He promises them a definite sign. What is that? Do away with this sanctuary. Three days I will raise it up. That's not a sign. Who's defining sign? You or Jesus? Jesus. He was asked to give a sign. He gives a sign. A sign is not going to be like changing water into wine, but a sign that's going to relate to his person, his body. Now, that sign that Jesus promised to confirm his authority created misunderstanding. They didn't know what he was talking about. It didn't uh, satisfy them. They said, this sanctuary is built in 46 years. You're going to raise it up in three days? That's what they need is there. Misunderstanding, right? It's one of John's callers, okay? That's the answer. John then intervenes to supply an explanation for their lack of understanding. And to clarify what Jesus had predicted by saying, he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. And then, in the editorial comment, he says, uh, he, he interprets Jesus' promise sign to refer to his death and resurrection. Then John knows the disciples themselves came to realize the significance of what Jesus said only after his resurrection. Quote, when then he was raised up from the dead, his disciples recalled that he had said this. I believe the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay. So now you have a distinction between the signs Jesus performed and the sign he would become through his crucifixion and resurrection. Okay, so the close of chapter 12, the gospel moves from the signs that Jesus worked publicly to the sign which he himself would become 
by being raised from the dead. So what have I done? I have two things to try to prove. One is the book of science isn't reserved to the first part of the gospel. How do I establish that? I'm showing that there's a resurrection. It's a sign that Jesus said, I'll give you a sign. That's not going to take place until the end of things. So signs don't end in chapter 12. The final sign, the ultimate sign, is going to be his crucifixion and resurrection. Right? Now I'm saying, yes, there is a division. There you say there's a break between chapter 12 and 13. But it's not between signs moving into glory. It's between one type of sign, the signs you perform for people, and the sign you would become personally. So that's part one. Part two, book of glory. Now, in the prologue itself, John tells us that Jesus, as the incarnate word of God, is a physical manifestation of divine glory. Right in the very beginning, he says, The word made him flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. So, glory, we beheld his glory, son of the cross. Oh, I've seen Jesus in the flesh. Jesus physically represents the presence and power of God in the mighty acts he did. Now, one of the things that uh, you find out is that uh, in, this, in the Cana story, the very end of it, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So the first miracle he performed manifested his glory, that he was the Son of God. Now the last miracle he performs to people, chapter 11, raising of Lazarus. Okay. Uh, Jesus says to them, Lord, by the time, uh, they say, by this time there'll be an odor. Jesus said to her, did I tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And then in the beginning, when he gets worried that Lazarus is sick, and he doesn't go, uh, says, for, uh, this illness is not until death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. So, when is God's glory revealed in John's Gospel? cross? Is it revealed just on the cross? No. It's right from the very first miracle. And what do you talk about? First miracle, last miracle. Reveal this glory, reveal this glory. What does it mean for all those in between? It's called inclusion. Okay. Just like the Beatitudes, reward for theirs of the kingdom of heaven. It means all the ones in between are another way of saying the same thing. So what do we have here? Glory is not re re uh, restricted to uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Every miracle that Jesus performs reveals who he is. And then it says, and they believed him. They believed he was God's son. Now, 
add a little icing to the cake. You know what's missing in John's Gospel? The Transfiguration story. That's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? That's the only time that Jesus reveals his glory in the Synoptic Gospels. A special revelation on the Mount. It was last Sunday's Gospel. All right. Okay? John does not have that story. Why? Why does any of that story? He's doing it through miracles. Yeah, he doesn't need a special one-time revelation of Jesus' glory because he's been doing that throughout his ministry. Every miracle he's performing, he's revealing his glory and, and drawing people to believe in him. So, so the revelation of Jesus' glory okay, isn't reserved to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's taking place all throughout Jesus is saying. So, the whole thing that I did, and I don't want to uh, drag this on, is that, uh, Good. you know, thematically, uh, it's not between signs and glory. Because the signs begin at Cana and at the cross. So, Book of Signs, Book of Glory? No, no. It's a book of signs, all of which reveal his glory. From Cana to his on the cross. And the reason he doesn't need a transfiguration scene? He doesn't need a special moment to reveal his glory because it's been throughout the whole gospel. We've been close with him. So then, as far as the narrative is concerned, and you, uh, I printed some sheets which you'll get on your uh, files. Uh, Cynthia's going to put them up, uh, just summarizing this. But basically, as a story, you can't separate chapter 11 from chapter 13. Why? Because in chapter 11, it talks about uh, uh, you have the uh, story of Lazarus. You have a high priest saying what? It's better that one man die. One of the guys, this is his high priest, said here says to them, you know nothing at all. You don't understand. It's expedient for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should not perish. He didn't say this of his own accord, but being high priest of the year, prophesied the Jews should die for the nation. Not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God were scattered abroad. Then, in chapter 18, verse 19, the high priest sent question Jesus about the disciples and his teachings. Uh, uh, before that, verse 14 in chapter 18. It was Caiaphas who had given counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. What do we again call that? Where? Include. Chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus, he says, you know, this miracle is going to, you know, we're going to lose control. It's better to get rid of one guy than, you know, for the whole nation to suffer and perish. Then when Jesus is dragged before Annas and Caiaphas, 
John reminds us, Caiaphas is the guy who had said this, it's better than one man die. So that's what we're going to do. So that means that what's take, the death of Jesus, his trial and ultimate death, is connected with what? His raising of Lazarus. Raising of Lazarus prompted the high priest to say, we've got to get rid of this one guy. So that we're going to save the nation. Then it's brought up again in his trial, which goes to show you that in the story of Jesus' life and death, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11 is bound up with chapter 18, his trial. So you can't split the gospel after 12. That leaves the remark that Caiaphas mentions back in chapter 11, cut off from what's happening in chapter. What's happening in chapter 18 is a result of he says in chapter 11, and the results of the raising Lazarus. The irony of it is that, uh, yes, uh, they will take away one man's life, but through his death, <coughs> well, he will rise, and then his nation will be saved. You know, the irony of it is that. So, but I also said that, uh, you know, literally, you can't chop up the book at the end of chapter 12. Because literally 11 and 18 were tied together. But also, and again, you'll have this on the pages that I gave you. Uh, I split the gospel into three sections, not two. Chapters 1, 19 to 454. That's part one. That's the of the prologue. Chapter 1, verse 19 to chapter 454. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Chapter 5, verse 1, rather. Chapter 10, verse 42. So it's all 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. And the third part was chapter 11, verse 1, to chapter 20, verse 29. Notice I kept chapter 11 joined to chapter 20, the last part there. So geographically, it works because part 1, verses 119 to 454, what's the geographical? trend. Cana of Galilee to Jerusalem, back to Cana of Galilee. Part two, Jerusalem, Galilee, Jerusalem. First you have, you have Cana of Galilee, Jerusalem, Cana of Galilee. Now you have Jerusalem, uh, Galilee, Jerusalem. And the final scene is all in Jerusalem, because that's the focal point of the gospel. But also, in each of those three sections, revolves around a Passover. Chapter 2, verse 13 is the first Passover. Chapter 6, verse 4 is the second Passover. Chapter 11, verse 55, Passover. So the story revolves geographically, you know, on a parallel scene. Then in each of those three parts, you have the Passover that's the center of it. And of course, then you have the inclusion there between chapter 11, 40, 11 verse 49, chapter 18 verse 14. So the inclusion links the raising of Lazarus to the trial scene. So you can't have a narrative break at the end of 12, since Jesus is suffering and death in chapters 18 and 19. is brought about by his raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. So what I'm doing, what I'm doing is saying, well, it's very facile for John to say, for Brown to say, Book of Science, Book of Glory. That doesn't hold water. The signs aren't over, chapter 12. The ultimate sign 
is crucifixion and resurrection, that's going to happen at the end of that second part. Glory is not just reserved to the second part of the gospel, raised on the cross. It's throughout the gospel from the very first miracle he worked, John says it. Okay, is the death and resurrection Jesus a sign? He said so. When he was asked to give one, he said, okay, destroy this temple. Then John says, okay, they misunderstood what he said. What he meant to was his body. Then he says, the guys didn't catch on until after he had risen from dead. Oh, that's what he meant. Resurrection, you know, raising in his body. So the just main point of my dissertation was John's gospel. We need a new look at it. What we have here, I'm just concluding remark, is two structures. You have a thematic structure, which is signs performed. Sign he became personally. It's a thematic structure. There is a break between chapter 12 and 13, but that structure, structure of signs. But the overarching structure is the narrative or story, which is divided into three parts, as I mentioned. You know, because you have to keep the raising of Lazarus tied in with the trial uh, crucifixion scene. So you have. Uh, an overall narrative, three sections, and within that narrative structure, you have a thematic structure. Signs performed, signing became. Is that the only time John does it? No, in the prologue. You'll see in the printout I'll give you that it has a narrative structure, then inserted, excuse me, a poetic structure, and inserted into poetic structure, he has narrative. And I've indented it so that you notice that. So in the prologue, you have a poem or a hymn. Okay, that's the overall structure. And inserted into that is a narrative structure. So you have narrative structure within the poem. Here you have thematic structure within a narrative structure for the overall look at God. So I don't know, uh, you know, I thought it made sense, more sense than was, I just saw too many holes. Everybody else bought this. The only scholar that felt, and he just mentioned in one line, all the books I went through, it was uneasy that Brown had dismissed or ignored the resurrection, death and resurrection, it was Gerard Sloyan, Catholic University. He wrote a commentary on John, just in one line. He was talking about this. He bought Signs and Glory, but it was, just, it was uneasy with the fact that Brown didn't take into account Death and resurrection as a, a sign. Yeah. So you won't hear any place else but here. Right, but that's what I spent close to three years working on. But I don't know, I thought it just made sense. You know, when you look at that, you know, Jesus giving a sign, okay, that doesn't take place till the end. So you have to stretch signs, but there is a difference in the signs he performed for people and the sign he became personally in his death. And then, I was the defense, father. Uh, very good. I just the comments I got were uh, one priest told me that uh, he said the last thing we need it was at the very end of the slides was to read another dissertation, but he said uh, uh, you made it such that I kept looking forward to turning the page, see how you were developing your argument. He said you had me hooked, and I was waiting to see how you were going to uh, get there. So. I, I took that as a compliment. <laughs>
So I'm, you know, most dissertations are unreadable, except to the person who wrote it. And sometimes I wonder whether he or she did. Uh, but I said to my mentor, I said, you know, I preach on Sundays. I want people to understand what I'm doing and to be very logical and clear. Just explain why I say certain things. So anyway, so that was it. Let me give you a break and we'll come back and uh, talk about the literary techniques and characteristics, okay? We'll be back uh, before five to nine, please. Okay? Any questions on, I mean, I'm not asking you to buy this. I'm just telling you, you know, I just found an alternate way of uh, structuring the gospel. Uh, you don't have to swallow everything that's in print, no matter how important a bigger person is, if you see something. If you take all the stories of the death, I mean, all the Gospels, and you think about the ripping of the veil uh, yeah, you know, and, and the water coming out of Jesus' side, to me, those are yeah. the greatest signs, you know? The earthquake. Yeah. I know. Yeah, uh, there's signs. Yeah, John mentions there are many other signs, the signs that Jesus performed. But uh, those are signs, uh, natural signs, I guess you call it. God, the Father, would be responsible for this, not Jesus himself. Oh, okay. It's a natural science in the heavens. And John also had access to that Q file, or no? Not with no indication why, because uh, most of the Q is sayings, and he's not into little things. He's into big dialogue with Nicodemus, big dialogue with the Samaritan woman, big dialogue with the man born blind, a big dialogue with his disciples for bread of life, a big dialogue. Martha and Mary, the resurrection. He says, I have these little sayings that we have in Q. Okay, great. So he ties this, most of those dialogues into miracles as the point of science. So that's what makes him distinct. So anyway, we'll go into a little bit more of that. Okay? All right. <laughs>